0: Whenever I contemplate fat loss and health, I think of, you know, what's the best way procedurally, methodologically, what's the best way to eat? Hunger is probably the single key. If you're going to look at public health and get everybody at large, it's not necessarily, well, this tastes better or this tastes better or this food is more accessible or you know vegan this or plant based or or keto it's just if you can control your hunger you probably have a better chance of maintaining your progress and maintaining and sustaining your goal once you get there one of the things i mentioned i was interested in searching for was any of the research that Dr. Dominique Diagostino had mentioned in some of his recent interviews online. And as just a little bit of a backup, he is one of the top experts, I would say, in, in actual research at, uh, at either University of South Florida or Florida University um, in ketogenic research, both for what is kind of the, the seminal reason I think people e- even look at ketogenic dieting now which is epilepsy research and then also he does it for performative reasons for Navy seals for the government for you know fighting combat type situations just looking for better energy management for our our soldiers sailors and marines and uh, he I just saw a, a recent interview where he, has backed up a couple steps, and instead of being a proponent of of hardcore classic ketogenic dieting, he was talking about some of the new research people have been doing in modified keto and low-glycemic carb modified keto adaptations of ketogenic dieting. Modified keto or modified Atkins is just simply saying instead of 90% of your calories coming from fat – let's get a pretty normal amount of protein, even though that does get converted into glucose in many situations in small amounts, it's still not eating sugar, processed carbs or carbs. So it can take you out of ketosis, but it's protein and and there's some value there. So that has always been a low carb version of keto, a high protein, low carb version of keto, But now, and I remember talking to him a few times when I've been in Florida with him and and I've presented alongside him different topics, you know, he, he always talked about the fact that since he has been keto adapted himself for so many years that he can eat small amounts of carbs once in a while and really stay in pretty deep ketosis. So logically there's a, a user rate, all of the fat adaptation physiologically that you get into from being fat adapted for months and years doesn't go away because you eat, you know, one Pop-Tart. And and yet he showed, even though he was completely interested in staying there for his own personal health reasons, as well as his research, um, you know, whether there's, I I wouldn't even say there's a nuance. He he would not be somebody who's like, oh, I just had to, it's my kid's birthday party, had to have a piece of cake. Like he just wouldn't do that. Like he's just so committed to his research. He would not do that but he's thinking and looking as a scientist should curiously for different ways to do things. And so he, he, he just noted that maybe even increased cooked vegetables, which release more starch in the bloodstream or GI tract, um, you know, different ways where he could have a little bit of carbohydrate and it just didn't seem to upset the apple cart too much. So what he said recently is that they're now doing research, and I saw this one as I was reviewing literature for today, um, where even with epileptic you know, high seizure patients, people who have multiple seizures per day, looking at those three versions of ketogenic dieting, there's not that much difference. In other words, for the sustainability um, of this lifestyle, of this dietary need for people with severe epilepsy, They're showing that some protein and even some low glycemic carbs can still get you a lot of the way there, Uh, because that's been a real problem. Obviously, you know you have kids with grand mal seizures and or anybody else, and you tell them you can never eat anything but fat. You know, here's just a stick of butter. This is what you eat today. Pretty pretty dismal. And there have been some people who just don't do it. They would rather have the seizures than do that. So they've been looking for ways to, to modify this and make it more acceptable. And I, for the life of me, as I was searching and, I, you know, on Google Scholar, PubMed and so forth, I was, I was doing every kind of search I could just to look for uh, modified, low glycemic, modified, any version of keto, you know, versus each other, where are these at? And page after page after page of search results, and it just still was epilepsy, 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 epilepsy. So I finally found something, which was a meta-analysis, which I'm happy because I would rather have that that wider survey than just a a single study that dealt with truly just things like fat loss, particularly for our goal today, hunger, which is a huge hinge of fat loss and, and fat maintenance. So I've got some things that I think are going to be very interesting to maybe round out. There, there may be one, one good extra part to the series we've done on hunger. Um, I, there, there may, I may want to look up something on just the psychological aspects, but as, as a bit of, of a review, here's what we've talked about so far. Part one was all about blood glucose, which is a strong theory for hunger, you know, insulin and so forth as blood sugar undulates up and down in your bloodstream post meals you know, can, you know, does, is that what causes hunger? That's a huge theory. It has impact. Then of course, hormones, we know ghrelin, leptin, all those things, you know, that, that is a, is a major factor, um, sustainability and how we eat. As I just discussed, even people with medical conditions staring them at the, in the face, if you can't sustain it, it's just not going to work. So we have to look at how we sustain a real lifestyle through hunger management, we covered the neurophysiology, you know, what happens in our brain and, and can, can we control some of that? So today we're going to turn to macronutrients. And specifically, when you look at the headline or the, the title of the study, dietary fat and fiber, that's what they were comparing. Uh, and, and I'll tell you why in a minute, but they're looking, comparing mostly carbohydrates with varying levels of fiber But when researchers are typically looking at dietary intervention, this has just classically been one of the things. If you eat more fiber, good things happen. Anecdotally, case study by case study, good things happen. Well, why? And people in the ketogenic crowd also say, hey, we're the ones, we own hunger. Like like if you eat a high-fat diet – and low-carb, you're controlling blood sugar, insulin, and so forth, and we know fat sates better, so you should have a, a high-fat diet. Well, those things are kind of opposite because if, if you have a, you can't have a low-carb diet and a low-fat diet, you go, you know, one of those has to be a stronger substrate of energy. Uh, this particular meta-analysis completely leaves out protein but they do mention it in their summary and discussion a little bit, which which is perfect for for our intent. Um, this is, you know, when I, when I titled this particular uh, little presentation, you know, with macronutrients, it, it, it would have been nice. Maybe maybe I will complete the circuit, so to speak, by adding at least some evidence of what protein does, because we know when we have a certain amount of protein, when blood amino acids are high enough. That also has impact on hunger, but for most of today, we're just going to look at basically what happens with with fat in our diet, higher fat diets versus higher carbs. So uh, here, here's the premise. This is their their opening statement. Humans appear to have the innate energy regulation mechanisms that manifest in sensations of of satiation during a meal and satiety post ingestion. Interactions between these mechanisms and the macronutrient profile of their contemporary food environment could be responsible for the dysregulation of this mechanism, resulting in a high energy intake. The aim of this systematic review is to determine the impact of of dietary fiber and fat, both in isolation and combination, on satiation and satiety. So let's let's look at what they did here as a meta-analysis. They went all the way back. I mean, they just looked at everything that's ever been published on fiber versus fat, you doing all those kind of searches. I just mentioned that I was doing, you know, does, does a high fat diet reduce hunger, blah, 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 blah. Uh, they ended up with about 1500 di- or studies, you know, that, that at least address this somewhat. Uh, they only found 10 studies suitable for this inclusion, which is that's, that's weeding out a lot. Uh, a couple other ones they did talk about just because of some of the overlap, but here's here's why they they brought this down to such a narrow fine point. Uh, they wanted to test meals that included high fat low fat, and mixed they want they looked at ISO and non iso energetic designs so kind of you know are you trading exact calories from fat to carbs and vice versa um, they they in in the studies they actually included they ended up with um, Uh, enough information that they could break it out into gender and age. Um, They had people of, of, you know, I think every stripe you could imagine from normal weight to overweight, 18 years old to 50 years old. They ended up with in this, they ended up with looks like what, six, almost 800 uh, participants. So through those 10 studies, that's how many subjects were actually involved in, in those different studies. And again, they were looking at, uh, the 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 two things we're looking at hunger versus satiety. One, as I'll show you here in a second, is more a measurement of actual fullness. Like I can push away from the table and I feel full. My my belly is full. The other one is um, you know satiation, which is I feel satisfied. I feel good. That was a good meal. I'm happy. I can I can stop eating. So. A little a little bit of a semantic difference there but I think you'll get it here in a second. Um, I do think I need to move you guys so I can read this um, yeah I already mentioned that between the carbs that they included carbs as well as just fiber. So a little bit of a background on why this is important looking at just these two specific variations one, When you're doing research like this, people always look back at our evolutionary history. You know, at this point in our species, what works? What does our GI system do? You know, what's good? What's bad? What's right? What's wrong from a health perspective? And more importantly, why? How did we get here? And so I think it is important that for the 200,000 or so years of homo sapiens, all the way up to possibly a million years uh, in transition, Uh, you know, we have had meat, we have hunted and gathered, you know, we, um, you know, the discovery of fire was, you know, all the way back to, I think, almost 2 million years ago. And so we have been breaking down starches, heavy vegetables into more uh, easily digestible forms. So we get those oligosaccharides broken down into simple sugars and starches, you know, simple sugar, even from fruit, but then also the inclusion of animal protein. That's kind of our norm. And keep that in mind. What, what does that sound like hunting, gathering, you know, fruits, berries, roots, things like that. And animal protein sounds pretty much like paleo, right? You know, you're getting carbs and you're getting protein. You're not, you're not having, you know, nobody in our history from 100, 200 years ago and further back were differentiating that much. Like, oh, I can't eat that. It's, you know, you you ate what you could get. But then you compare that to our highly palatable processed foods now that are typically high fat, high sugar, high flour, high processed everything, Uh, even high sodium. I ran across a study last night uh, that really interested me, I may go back to it, showing that when you consume more sodium, Your body craves higher fat foods. So, you know, something kind of anecdotal, just think about, but I may go look back at that one. So, so that's the juxtaposition between our long, 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 long long-term history with how our physiology was formed and works versus what we're faced with now culturally. Then of course you have the keto versus carbs, all of those just hyper marketing type messaging that we get. Uh, most of us now have fat loss goals. We're not undernourished. We're overnourished. That has massive impact on, on what we need to look at and think about. And then for most of us, I hope we're thinking about long-term health impact, not just fat loss. You know, what is sustainable? What is doing the most for me? Because we know when you eat a pretty unregulated ketogenic diet, meaning you're not even that differentiated on the kind of fat you consume, your chance of heart disease is actually higher. You know, Dr. Atkins died of heart disease, um, two or three other really, really big name players in the ketogenic movements, all died of heart disease. So something to keep in mind. Um, so when we look at these kinds of things, you know, together mechanisms for maintaining weight are thought to exist in all animals in humans, food intake is controlled by appetite signaling, signaling through a complex system of hormones a complex process of biochemical responses, interactions, and feedback mechanisms. So all the things we've talked about in this series so far, but I want to posit a point that I don't think I've ever said this directly, nor have I really thought about it this directly. Whenever I contemplate fat loss and health, I think of you know what's the best way procedurally methodologically, what's the best way to eat, and I haven't really thought about it until this fifth episode in the series that hunger is probably the single key. If you're going to look at public health and get everybody at large, it's not necessarily, well, this tastes better or this tastes better or this food is more accessible or, you know, vegan this or plant-based or, or keto. It's just, if you can control your hunger, you probably have a better chance of, of maintaining your progress and maintaining and sustaining your goal once you get there. So if, if you think about the times that you may misstep or fail at what you're trying to accomplish, if you were never biochemically hunger, don't you think it'd be easier? if you could really look at hunger mitigation as a key. So that's kind of the entire substance of what they're looking at, uh, because biologically those hormones in our bodies that dictate the signaling to make us full, remember when we talked about the neurophysiology, it's all about the hypothalamus and getting your hypothalamus, which cues hunger strongly it's all about making sure your hypothalamus is calmed down so that has to do with rising blood sugar levels or insulin levels has to do with uh mechanical receptors baroreceptors in your gi system has to do even with uh lipid levels so you have leptin and ghrelin in between you know what's happening in your your stomach and body fat cells all of these things again create this this massive neurogastric loop which, which end up cueing you for satiety or hunger. So if you can, through your food intake, control that, I think you control the whole ball game. Or again, we could argue that psychological issues and just just cravings outside of those physiological matter, but but it would still be a, a probably the biggest step. So uh, this is nothing that I'm going to really drag you guys through, but I wanted to show you a couple graphs on how they did this meta analysis. Uh, So if you look at these, like this represents one, two, three, four, five, this represents five of those studies I mentioned here. um, And they're looking at specifically hunger versus I'm going to flip over real quick to this one fullness. So the opposite, and there's one, two, three, four, five. So five more studies. In that Zoe studies broken out with all those different age groups. Or I'm sorry, yeah, age groups and high fat or low fat. So, so out of those 10 studies they were looking at, there were kind of five that had to do with just hunger cues and five that had to do with fullness cues. And as you look at this, they're looking at kind of the midline and which which direction were people pulled, you know, if, if you were in one of these particular demographics or not. But again, I'm not going to try and make you go through all this data. Uh, instead, I have more of a, a narrative explanation here coming up. Um, just a little bit more on the methodology, though. Uh, they used a, a visual analog scale for people to do these ratings, and they did them in three-hour increments. So here's your meal. You know, How do you feel before you eat this meal? You eat the meal, then you do it again after. And these are, these are four or five different types of visual scales just to show you. So it would be something like a Likert scale. I'm not hungry at all. Is number one, or I'm very hungry. Number 10, you do your, you just put, plot yourself on that scale or something. I think it's kind of cute. I think there's one on the bottom here. So I just wanted to point out that even that, just just a way of visual analog where they're showing, you know, people say, man, I feel really, really full and bloated, you know, the, the big representation of the stomach versus I feel kind of empty. Uh, anyway, let me jump on over here. So back, back to how this, this verbiage is laid out. Satiation is the feeling again of satisfaction. And some people describe this as mental, like I, I mentally, emotionally, cognitively feel satisfied. I think some of that has to do also though, and this is gonna be my spin on it, with blood sugar levels again. Satiety is that feeling of fullness. Like I said, mechanical fullness, my stomach is full. Oh my gosh, I feel my belly is just so, so big you can eat. Anybody here dieting has had a big meal with very low carbs. When you have used up all your carbs for the day and you've had a six or seven ounce chicken breast, maybe a little bit of a vegetable or something you feel full, but do you feel satisfied? You know, you can still actually be hypoglycemic. You can be kind of ravenous still because your blood sugar is still low. And when I was talking about this Monday, a couple of my clients took me up on the proposal that maybe if you do have issues with hunger like that, trading in a little bit of carbohydrate at some meals, one or two meals, with adding some fat may really help you. And I'm going to get to why in, in a few slides here, why that's helpful. But a couple clients told me that was a game changer. For example, instead of having just egg whites and a certain amount of carbohydrate for breakfast, they add a little fat, like maybe in an egg yolk and took out just a you know little bit of carbohydrate to make up for those calories. And they said, Oh my gosh, I cannot believe how much better I felt. Um, you know, I typically, as you guys know, have oatmeal with protein powder and fruit for breakfast, but my wife had made this kind of egg casserole, which had whole eggs. So I probably had like three whole eggs with, you know, some other things in there like potato and so forth and brought that in Monday for breakfast. And I don't think I could have eaten for about six hours, you know, after my oatmeal and protein powder, I'm, I'm looking for food in two and a half or three hours, same amount of calories. It it was not ketogenic. You know, there was potato in there, there was starch, there was carbohydrate, but a little bit more fat, a little less carbohydrate, kind of a, probably a lot less carbohydrate. And I I don't know the exact calorie exchange, you know, I, I may have had more calories with that egg bake kind of breakfast, but man, talk about just being both full and satisfied. Had I not had any carbs with that meal and it was truly a ketogenic type breakfast, I think you run that risk of pretty soon you get so glycogen depleted in that metabolic switch is in the metabolic position to be so depleted that you run into those problems. That's that's why pure classic ketogenic dieting is researched to be the one that creates the most binge eating disorder and is researched to be the least sustainable. So once again, as we're sifting through this meta-analysis on carbs slash fiber versus fat for hunger, I'm going to hopefully get you to see it's definitely not an either or, but it's a how and when, how much, and how do I do this? What's, what What does the research show is the best, best way to play this. So I'm gonna go through, I think four slides here that really give now <coughs> pages and pages of analysis in just some bullet points of, of the actual outcome of this, this meta-analysis. So first of all, with fiber and satiation, the ability to say, wow, I'm super satisfied. I feel great. I could live like this. Fiber does contain a range of complexity. We have soluble and insoluble. We have different amounts of starch versus fibrous you know, content in each each source. Um, carb sources range. I guess I just said that. Based on this, there's a need for more longitudinal studies examining the chronic effects of dietary composition. So those different levels of carbs versus fiber, This this was their own word in the, uh, in the study, but for the purpose of this meta-analysis, the high fiber slash carb comparison, no matter what that mix was still proved, you know, very, very valid in just comparing carbs and fiber versus fat. Um, and then the, you know, the bottom line is having some carbs, having a high fiber diet, with low fat. So this gets into more of like the Pritikin, Ornish, you guys probably don't remember those names, but from like the 70s, 80s, 90s, those types of diets, you know, which were all very, w- w- the 80s was kind of the decade of low fat, everything was low cholesterol, low fat, heart friendly. And that was because the proponents at that time were all just super, super, super low fat. So Atkins resurgence, he was kind of the guy in the 50s, and then he had a big resurgence in the seventies. And as you know, from just marketing, everything goes in cycles. As soon as one thing's super popular, you don't get an edge when you're trying to sell something unless you're doing something very contrarian. So you had these, you know, high fat decades that, that kind of interlude between high carb, low fat decades. Um, but then of course, you know, we're, we're back into a keto age, And in between there was the zone with, you know, the 30, 40, 30 stuff, kind of a balanced approach. And every once in a while, those kind of things, you know, you run out of things to do with macronutrients, right? High fat, low fat, high carb, low fat, low, low carb. Um, And so now it's intermittent fasting, you know, that's more of a methodological approach. So anybody trying to sell a book or a diet plan is going to find some kind of gap somewhere. And it's typically going to be whatever people aren't paying attention to right now, but high carb, low fat is correlated with feeling great, sustainable dieting. Again, very proven in research that the higher fat, low carb diets are the least sustainable. So then what about fat and satiation? As I just said, all the studies that they were looking at, there was a very weak correlation with fat and satiation. Again, you can have a high fat diet and and just, just, to bring you back to this point, a classic ketogenic diet is 90% of your food intake from fat, 5% protein, 5% fiber, just enough for GI motility in some cases. I know tons of people who have destroyed their GI systems on ketogenic dieting. But you know, eating something like that is not satisfying at all. Very weak correlation. Uh, And they also noted from their research as they're doing all these citations from 1,490 different studies, including the, the 12 that they included, that a higher fat diet is how we get obesity. It's not carbs. People don't get fat by eating too many apples or too much brown rice. It's always the highly fat palatable foods that include some carbs, you know, all the processed stuff that you get in the the bakery aisle kind of thing. Um, But then another note is individual studies sometimes show that appetite decreasing properties of adjusted fats, um, you know, even though they show in some studies, some pro keto studies show that on just a pharmacological physiological level, we can show why fat, as I said, in my breakfast, you know, Monday with the egg yolks, You know, that can help mitigate hunger, but it just doesn't hold up in ad libitum studies. When when you say, okay, you can eat all you want. So it's not an it's not an energy restricted study when you give people higher fat, even though it can reduce hunger in terms of that satiety, it doesn't necessarily fix satiation needs. And so people end up eating more, eating more, eating more, eating more. So, so keep that in mind. That's just, you know, all all of these strikes in the column against just a higher fat diet, but they did mention, of course, macronutrient consumption doesn't occur in a vacuum. We don't eat just fat alone or fiber alone. Um, And so, you know, you know, they even mentioned, I, I think I mentioned this in a slide coming up with, with some protein, but going, going now to, uh, satiety. So now how I actually feel mechanically what's happening in my GI system, fiber correlates to slower gastric emptying acutely. So we know we're going to, we're going to have those blood sugar level rises a little bit more slowly, which, which helps on that hunger side from blood glucose. And on a more long-term level, when you have a high enough fiber diet, remember that those insoluble, uh, fiber particles when they get to your large intestine, anaerobic bacteria, convert them into fatty acids. And so that even gives you a little bit of, of a hunger reduction. So even if you're having a low fat diet, but you have enough fiber, your body's producing some fat through that insoluble fiber. And so that actually has some impact on decreasing hunger in more the long-term in-between meal status. But now we'll get to the the final part of this, the fat in satiety. Fat does correlate high to feeling mechanically full, like I said, but with more of a contextual variation, slower gastric emptying also, just like fiber, because it, it takes longer to get digested, but it is more dependent on the amount. So a small amount of fiber can make somebody feel full that that reduces gastric emptying but a small amount of fat may not. And so you really, it, it, there's a bigger variance depending on, on the amount when it comes down to fat instead of fiber. Uh, and, and here's some interesting nuance uh, they, they even tested. You guys remember, we went through a couple uh, studies that, that, you know, looked at just the timing of meals and so forth. You know, if you ate your, your lunch at this time versus two hours later and so forth, well, a higher fat breakfast as I just described my Monday reduced energy intake at lunch. So when people were just able to eat whatever they want, they eat a little less at that next meal, it's it's delayed and they eat less. But they actually ended up with a higher energy intake over that entire day. So there's a rebound effect. Again, because I think if you're not paying attention to having blood glucose levels moderated, if you go all the way into that ketogenic mentality, it does catch up with you and then you end up eating more. Uh, satiety due to a higher fat meal can be even improved with protein. So again, I'm not, I'm not anti-fat, I'm anti-pure ketogenic dieting. Um, but also satiety with, you know, due to fat can be improved with fiber. So now you're getting some interplay and I don't want to make this just sound like, oh, we just have to be quote balanced, 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 but we know we need some fiber. We know fat can help as I described Monday. And if, if you feel like you just would, would have a little less hunger with more fat instead of a super low fat diet, then we can talk about percentages and so forth. So let's, let's wrap this up. And then, uh, then when well, then we'll discuss a little bit owing to high energy density fat has weak effect on satiation as determined by the, um, the effect per kilojoule of energy carbohydrates that contain high levels of dietary fiber are effective at producing satiation at relatively low levels of energy intake. So again, it takes a lot more fat to feel sated. doesn't take that much fiber. This is owing to the greater volume occupied by carbohydrates containing fiber relative to those that do not. The fiber content slows the absorption of fat consumed with it, thereby allowing an optimal level of satiety to be derived from the fat relative to its energy content. A delay in hunger rather than an increase in fullness is more likely, however, this review was unable to conclusively find such an effect. Again, from fat. So they're saying we could not determine that fat really does delay hunger. The potential to improve satiation and satiety by consuming carbohydrates containing fiber together with fat. So again, let's, let's have a little fat, but not exclusively fat keep the fiber and the carbs in there, uh, thereby preventing, or at least minimizing weight gain warrants further investigation. So again, I don't think anybody's coming down to this, some kind of a quote, perfect 33, 33, 33, or 30, 40, 30 kind of business, but we need, we need protein. We need carbs. We need fats. You know, what amounts are best. Um, As we look at this in the greater context of what we all know, not just the confines of this study, even with epilepsy, a modified keto, like I said, which is just higher protein and low glycemic, low moderate carb modified keto have been shown to virtually have identical results. And I think if you look at what that means, uh, the reason epilepsy is important in the dietary world Right or not, that has become the justification for low-carb, high-fat diets. A lot of people just assume and transfer credibility that if somebody with this very specific neurological disorder improves almost miraculously with a zero-carb, high-fat diet, then it should be good for all of us absolutely inconclusive, uh, transference of results. It, that, that, that does not mean that just because those people are more prone, because there are very, very specific genetic mechanisms for that with somebody with epilepsy. It does not mean that, that it's good for all of us, but instead, uh, I, well, first, let, let me, let me, let me back up for a second. But even with that said, even, even with that being kind of the gold standard for epilepsy, and therefore, so many keto proponents try to transfer that to normal dieting. They are showing that adding protein, you still get all those benefits, but now you get better health benefits. Adding a little bit of carbohydrate, where tolerable for somebody with epilepsy, you can get almost the exact same benefits to that patient, but it's now more sustainable. So they're even backtracking off of that. But once again, when you look at everything we just studied in context, what's the number one diet studied for longevity? The Mediterranean diet. It also happens to be concluded as one of the most sustainable. So you have a moderate amount of fat. They use monounsaturated fats. These are Mediterranean diets are the high olive producing companies. So they eat or countries they eat a lot of olives they have a lot of olive oil in that what do they call it it's not the goldilocks zone that's cosmological um there's some zone they call it kevin probably knows blue zone the blue zone okay that's just where like all of the octogenarians like like people live to be you know 90 100 years old just regularly and they eat, a, they eat a decent amount of fat, but it's all monounsaturated. They have pretty low processed carbohydrates. They eat plenty of carbohydrates, but it's fruits, vegetables, legumes, even nuts and so forth. Um, and uh, in most of their, most of their protein or a, a larger percent of their protein than most of the world comes from fish. So it's high fish because of their, their location by the sea. Um, not, I don't want to say high fat, but it's not low fat at all. And it's also not low carb. So it's, it's not just pretty well balanced as we would use that word, but it's pretty specific in all three of those sources. It's, it's the healthiest version of all three, but that also transfers nicely to kind of a land-based or non-blue zone range of paleo diet. You just kind of maybe not emphasize the olive oil as, as much. Um, but you have more animal land, animal protein sources, but you're still eating low processed carbs, low sugar. It's not high fat or keto at all, but it's moderate. And now you have kind of a, a brother in that battle. The Mediterranean the paleo diets are probably the two healthiest out there. So again, I, I would not argue that there has to be some kind of a preferentially perfect macronutrient distribution or range or certain exact foods that you must consume. But we've got a pretty good framework right there between those two diets in between the studies that we know that that prove a a high, high fat diet is definitely not superior. And a just super, super, super low fat diet may not be necessary. And there may be for hunger cueing and signaling some reasons to add some fat. So there we go. What are you guys' thoughts and questions? Cindy.
1: So this kind of fits into my trip to Austria recently where I emailed you and told you that I was found it so interesting that um, all of our meals were included with our stay and at breakfast, everything that was laid out, it seemed was all of the like heavy and fat, all of the cheeses, the deli meats, salamis, croissants um obviously all homemade Austrian things that morning but the way they laid their food out for the day um was really interesting so I I went with it and I interestingly enough found that I would eat breakfast at 7 30 and that would hold me over until 1 and that would never happen at home mm. so um you know, I also was very busy out hiking and doing things and, and not sitting around at home where I could easily open the refrigerator and grab food. So, um, and there wasn't, there weren't any stores nearby either. So I couldn't just pop in and grab some snacks or anything like that, but I, I was, I was okay. And then we would have lunch around one 30 and it was usually a light soup and salad. Um, and then dinner at was at seven o'clock and that lasted it was like a two hour ordeal every night but very small portions and very balanced, I guess. And I just found that I wasn't as hungry as I am at home. So I find this super interesting.
0: Mm-hmm. You have some really, really good points there. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up context, the the context of just a European way of life. And then also how busy you were after breakfast, because most people in Europe are still walking, biking, things like that. It's almost kind of like Manhattan in some regards, um, you know, versus in the Midwest, we can't even get people to go park in a parking garage and walk for a block. I mean, it's just like, you just, people are so used to not moving, um, because I would argue that, you know, in that kind of middle, you know, European, um, context, things like a croissant and cheese and deli meats, that's a lot of high saturated fat, which again, if you're really, really active that, that any health risk may be mitigated and you're, you're turning over a lot of that energy. But again, if you're, if you're even able to replace some of that with unsaturated fats and be healthier, I think that could be a good move. But th- the other point of context, I was speaking to somebody who's just getting started dieting. She has never really looked at the physiology or biochemistry of dieting. And so, you know, as I want, of course, to give all of this context and every single layer and nuance that she's going to encounter, I know I can't, I need to just kind of shine light on that very next step that we need. And when I was trying to explain meal timing, I did say it all matters about your context, when you wake up, when you go to sleep, when you're active, when you're not, and I gave her my current example. I, I, I wake up at four in the morning. I try to get to bed by eight at night. I mean, so I'm asleep by nine, so I can get seven hours of sleep. So the way my day is set up, you know, I, I wake up, get to work, do a little work, eat breakfast at seven, which is that protein, fruit, oatmeal. Three hours later, I'm pretty hungry. And so now I'm having brown rice, ground turkey, a vegetable, Then three hours later, I'm getting ready to train. So sometimes I'm, I still have enough food in my stomach or GI system that I just don't even have a pre-workout post-workout. If I do it, something like post-workout, sometimes if I have a pre-workout, I'm not even hungry for a post-workout, but if I do, it's going to be a scoop of protein powder. Then I have a pretty big dinner. Like you said, that European type thing. And and now it's five o'clock at night for me. I'm going to be done eating by five or five thirty, And so I, I now have 14 hours that I'm not eating. So I'm really getting half of my calories in those first two meals within three hours apart. Then in the afternoon with a post-workout in my dinner, it's almost another eight or nine hours. And then I get the other half of my calories. There's nothing quote balanced about that in terms of timing, but I've had that 14 hour window of sleep and, and post dinner. So I'm pretty empty and hungry. And then I'm training really hard in the afternoon. So I'm, I'm hungry again, and I'm going to be going 14 hours between there. So, you know, again, context matters. Your natural circadian rhythms matter, just everything uh, about your mobility and training, if you're active matters. Um, so, but, but again, I, I think that's probably very European for a reason you know, look at the way their society works and moves. And I think, like you said, it just, it just fits perfectly with them. And you also said that you and your daughter had marveled that you just didn't see any overweight people over there. You know, none of the locals were overweight. So eating that way is definitely worth Yeah. It. No,
1: it, it, it was. Yeah. And, and for her to notice, cause she's a 17 year old, you know, teenage girl, she's like, mom, I just can't nope nobody. I mean, there were, they were all very healthy looking people. And granted we're like right smack in the middle of, you know, the Austrian Alps where you're right. Everybody walks, they bike, they're, it doesn't matter if it's raining, it snowed every day we were there and everybody was still out walking. You know, they just throw their jackets on. There's no such thing as bad weather, just bad clothes. Is their like thing over there. So it was, it was really interesting. But when I came back and I was looking at you know, my numbers, I was wondering if, could I switch some of my fat and carb macros? And I wonder if that would help me because I do feel hungry. <laughs> I feel like after every meal and I, I don't know, you know, to maybe tweaking that, I wonder if it would help because I'm still pretty active here at home.
0: Absolutely. Um, I, I really do think that has some value. And and that's one of the things that I, I mentioned Monday that a couple of clients took me up on. And, you know, I noted that even when I was competing as a pro bodybuilder and dieting very aggressively down to three, 4% body fat, you know, if, if I could very strategically put just enough fat in these meals, then I also just felt much more satiation. I, I It's not just necessarily the fullness mechanically after that meal, but how good I feel between meals and how long I can go without obsessing about food. So I think we should definitely do that, Cindy. I mean, it's, it, it's not going to take a lot of just experimentation, but you know, one meal here, make some changes. We're talking, you know, 10, 15 grams of fat and we'll see, we'll see how it goes.
1: Sounds good. Thanks.
0: Good deal. Uh, Lainey jumping in. All right.
2: Yeah. But first of all, I got to see the prettiest girl on the planet. She can't hear you, but anyway,
0: awesome. I brought my daughter to work today.
2: Awesome. Um I was one of those people. So Monday when you said it, I was like, what? And so I was like, well, there's no harm in it, same amount of calories. So literally all I did was take seven percent from my carbs and put it towards my fat. And it's crazy. It was kind of a a switch for me because I didn't, I assumed a lot of why I was struggling was just because I wasn't disciplined enough or. I don't know. I I tend to beat myself up for before explaining any other reason. But yeah, I literally added, I think I low fat, still low fat, but cheese to my breakfast. and, um, And interesting when you said the fiber thing, because of the number change, I actually was able to have a more fibrous thing with my breakfast. And then avocado to my lunch. Oh, and then fish. And I, I, I guess I did feel fuller and I kind of was looking forward to, it does make the food taste a little bit better, having avocado with the stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know what it was, but, uh, keep it coming. It was, for me, it was helpful and I didn't even realize it's what I needed for a change or I I don't know, but I'm one of those people that were like, it, it made a difference.
0: In that controlled of an amount, I have to think, Laney. when you look at the physiology of this, there are neuropeptides and gastric peptides that are communicating with each other. That's how we do that hormonal chemical signaling. So it's not just that, man, that extra five grams of fat like that did so much for me. My, you know, it just, it just doesn't make that much of a mechanical difference. But when you are triggering certain hormonal messengers, again, back to your brain, back to your hypothalamus that, hey, we're sated, we're good. Remember, all those are evolutionary signaling just to keep you alive. You know, imagine if you're not a truly highly conscious sentient being, but you're you're a bumblebee or you're a a mouse or something like, you know, biological organisms are driven to survive by how much they eat when they don't need to eat. Um, you know, it's just it's all survival. And so sometimes it's almost a burden to have our brains that can think so much and overthink. Because if we just listen to those biological cues that are there for driving survival, including not being overfed, because then you don't survive very well. Um, but anyway, I, I just think that you're, you probably hit on just a really interesting sweet spot of having just enough fat to to trigger those those gastric peptides to say okay brain we're good shut off the hunger response the hunger signaling you know and you can flip it into the sated mode any other thoughts or questions guys
2: yes um Now, you know, I did sort of my last round of blood work. I did put more salmon in my meals. I sort of tried to do the Mediterranean and Mm -hmm. my numbers did go down. The only one that was a little lower, but it's fine, was the HDL. Mm -hmm. And the doctor did say something like eating a little handful
1: of pistachios.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And HDL is sometimes also driven by like exercise intensity. So, sometimes just by ramping up that even just a little bit can drive those HDLs up five or 10 points pretty, pretty quickly. Okay. Yeah, that's awesome. Good stuff. Okay. It's, it's one of the things I do hate. Like if somebody is truly doing a really low fat diet and then they think I, gosh, I can't have avocado. I can't have olive oil. I can't have salmon, all mm-hmm. these things that we know have such good value. value. So you should always be able to you know, make room for some of those good fats. Even if it's just intermittently. It doesn't even have to be every day. Well, like I said, I th- this this topic, I, I feel like I should close it down soon. I'm kind of surprising myself that I'm on part five and I'm just not letting this die. But there, there may be one one more thing I want to look at, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna always just <clears throat> I don't have really an agenda as I bring these things up. Some of them are driven by your questions, um, you know, things that you guys are, are contemplating and trying to figure out. And so uh, keep those things coming to me Uh, because they end up turning into good, good topics like this for us to discuss with everybody. All right, guys. Well, have an awesome weekend and rest of your afternoon, and I will see you next week, next time you can join. Take care.